Well, it's a real privilege to have with us here today and uh, via recording missionary David Scoville. I want to just give you a sense of, uh, of history. Um, you will remember um, that it was in about 1857, the latter part of that year, that the prayer meeting began up in uh, New York City that birthed the Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening, that um, began by that businessman, Jeremiah, Jeremiah Lanfear. And within a period of months, they were seeing 50,000 people um, saved on a weekly basis across America. In fact, that Great Awakening of 1858 to 59 would set in motion the greatest wave of world evangelization up to that point. Um, the uh, J. Uh, Edwin Orr says that whenever God moves in a revival way, the effects will be felt on the mission fields of the earth within 10 years. And so that's what was happening at that time. Well, um, just uh, in, at that very time over in England, uh, there's a young man, he is uh, 21 years old. His name is Henry Grattan Guinness. You ever see the uh, label of the, the beer label Guinness? Um, it's actually his, another arm of his family. So one arm of his family began, actually knew, became famous for the, the beer industry. Another arm of that family actually became leaders in world missions. In fact, Henry H. Grattan Guinness was called uh, the Billy Graham of his generation. Um, he was, at 21 years of age, he said this, I will, he wrote um, in his diary, to live preaching and to die preaching, to live and die in the pulpit, to preach to perishing sinners till I drop down dead. That was his passion. Um, well, he was more of a visionary than an administrator. His wife was a gifted he began the East London Institute, which was the missionary training college established in a very down and outside of uh, London. In fact, it was an entirely, it was an entire faith training institute. Um, so students came by faith knowing they'd have to support themselves and the institution was completely by faith. Well, it was in 1866, so this is just less than maybe eight years um, after 31-year-old Guinness had a, and it was over in Dublin, and he went to apologist, apologetics class in which he invited a young uh, 30, well, about 31-year-old man, Jane Hudson Taylor, to speak. And in that meeting, um, they, who was all, all, Taylor was also a product of that revival, they began to talk about his vision in relation to China Inland Mission. Um, well, that, that there was a, these men were contemporaries, um, and that night, Mr. and Mrs. Guinness caught a vision of world missions that would lead themselves and all of their children into the work of foreign missions. That was in 1866. Um, and he went, but his great, greatest work was training others to go. And that East London, uh, and out of that, you say, well, how's that touch us today? Well, it actually does touch us today because 
um, what was founded in his mission became known as the Regions Beyond Missionary Union. It was founded by H. Groton Guinness um, out of that revival wave. And that Regions Beyond Missionary Union um, uh, went to Cuba, went to Cuba, went to Congo, went around the world, just amazing, uh, uh, amazing move of God. Um, well, uh, moving ahead just a little bit to the end of, or into World War II, some of our soldiers and other soldiers are stationed there on this island of Papua where they're holding back the Japanese advance. Um, some of the plane flights are going from one side, the north side of the island, to the south side of the island where there's bases on either side. And uh, as they're flying over, they glimpse these peoples in these hidden valleys. Um, and uh, some of them are Christians. And as those soldiers retire, or as they, not retire, but return back home, some of them say, I'm going back to see if we can reach these unreached people groups. Um, they begin to train. One of the training institutions where some of these goes to is Prairie Bible Institute. Prairie Bible Institute actually sent and trained nearly 2,000 missionaries in the height of its ministry. It was led by Ellie Maxwell. And if I ever asked Dr. Van Gelderen Sr., what book, if you were to ask him what book you would recommend to read, he would give you two titles. He would give you Born Crucified. Well, he'd give you three titles. Born Crucified, Crowded to Christ, and The Normal Christian Life. The first two were written by Ellie Maxwell, who was the, was he the founder? Yes. The founder and the key teacher of Prairie Bible Institute. Um, which was a missionary training school. Well, some of these men returned home to train, and here's where Regions Beyond Missionary Union comes in. Ebenezer Vine, is it, is his name? Who was a representative, actually came through Prairie Bible Institute, connected with these men, and actually became the assisting partner as they returned back to this region of Papua, Indonesia. And so Regions Beyond Missionary Union, founded way back then, out of that revival, um, uh, became a key assisting agency and partner in actually reaching these, these, these groups. There's some amazing stories that come out. Of course, Don Richardson, um, Lords of the Earth and Peace Child are a couple well-known writings, but I have come across some others. If I had two lives, the life and faith of Costas McCree, a man who spent the first half of his ministry right up in this region, an amazing accounting and Brother Scoville knew him personally. He also knew Stanley Albert Dale, who was the one who was the Lords of the Earth story. Um, then you have uh, Torches of Joy by John Decker, another amazing angle of what happened, and uh, Brother Scoville knew him personally. There's The People Time Forgot by Alice Gibbons, another accounting of the amazing work God did, An Hour to the Stone Age. Um, and then, of course, this is called Drum Beats That Changed the World. This is actually the full history of the Regions Beyond Missionary Union. It's amazing. Um, and when you begin to um, just uncover these angles, you'll understand how excited I was when just about a year and a half ago, I'm sitting with Nathan Dietrich, and he says, there's a book you've got to read. And he says, my wife's been reading it. She has been in tears as she reads this book. It's called The Amazing Donnies. And it's by brother, by David Scoville. David Scoville really, 
I know a Don Scoble. It's his brother, David, and David spent 40, 50 years of his life in this region with all these things. And at this point, I pretty much uncovered all of this, and I didn't know that I had a personal connection to one of these missionaries. Going back a little bit, but I had known Brother Scoble's brother, Don, and of course, Pastor as well, and even our ministry in partnership with a few other training institutions had a uh, had a an appreciation and a personal a blessing through the life of Don Scoville. So I was just excited that this book um, and that this man had been um, with someone who I, I knew. And uh, so I kind of had a desire to have him come and to tell his story um, of what God has done and how God's used him. And so uh, it's a blessing to have him here. Uh, he was raised in northern Minnesota with parents at, uh, a mom and a dad, and especially a mom who prayed that her children would be called into full-time missions. And literally, nearly every a family of eight, nearly every single one of them have been in service to the Lord. And then when I think of H. Gretton Guinness, who I just mentioned, all of his family joined that missionary movement. Um, and what a joy that it is for parents to get that kind of a vision for their children and to pass that on. And even now, um, his... I had two children, one passed away, though his daughter is in Thailand in missionary service. His grandchildren through that family, three of them are in missionary service, one of whom wants to serve back in Papua, in that uh, region about your age. Um, and, uh, and so uh, the, uh, the heritage is passed on, so we praise God for that. So it's a privilege to have uh, Brother uh, David Scoble come speak with us this morning as well as uh, tomorrow morning. Uh, well, it is a pleasure to be with you. Uh, I have two allergies, however, which you need to know, and that is, the first is traffic. <laughs> traffic, however, uh, I noticed that highway out there is pretty lenient with that. There's not a lot of traffic on it, and I'm delighted because, you know, you go out of here and you have to turn left and go on up. Uh, but in, in Jakarta, it's a different story. A different story there. You got a horn and you got eyes you can see so you kind of watch where you're going. And the second thing is, my second allergy is the word preach. I've, I've got that on my schedule. I'm not sure how well I do with preaching. Chatting about the field? Yes, I'm okay with that. Preaching? Uh-uh. I don't like that term because I'm not a preacher. However, it is a pleasure to be with you to, uh, this morning to share some of those things that, that we've, we, we've experienced. But I'm going to break out this morning. I'm tired of my stories. Can you believe that? You are too, probably, aren't <laughs> And so I'm going to go to another facet of missions, which is very attractive to me right now, as I see the changing scene and nurture and help my kids and grandkids kids in uh, their desire to be a blessing to other people groups like Thailand and Papua New Guinea. I'm not sure that I'm doing that any longer because of age that has a uh, limiting effect, you know, as you get older. And I found out the other day something I read that I am now at 83 years a member of the elderly. 
Can you believe that? Can you believe that? But it's okay. Let me skip to an area that has blessed me just to give you a, a, a few hooks on what missions is all about. One of, yeah, I know you know it, and, uh, uh, but I want to remind you of that this morning, okay. The first thing is that you need to be aware and have posted somewhere in your mind and in your heart that missions is not an add-on. You got that? Missions is not an add-on. It was planned in eternity. It was launched in creation. Experienced in kernel form or expressed in kernel form in Genesis 3.15. I think that's the verse. Yeah, I will put empty between the end. <laughs> but that plan needed a channel. That plan needed a channel. And this is where Abram came in. He is the man around whom God began to express his desire to have a channel through which this whole plan could, could uh, unfold. Uh, and then you go through the Old Testament. The plan repeatedly was expressed in the Old Testament. It was then modeled by Christ, who was God's missionary. And that plan, <clears throat> excuse me, that plan is going to culminate in the throngs around the throne who will be saying and singing this, behold, this I beheld, John says, and lo, a great multitude which no man, <coughs> excuse me, which no man could number of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the lamb clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb. That's where missions is going. And this morning, I'm going to break out and deal with some of the problems we're having with mission in transition. Because things are changing out there, folks. I've got a, a forum here. Uh, that I wanted to read with you, but he took my time, so I'll just let it go, <laughs> okay? Uh, <laughs> thanks. Where'd he go? <clears throat> but missions has always been in a transitioning and changing mode. In methodology, in focusing on different target groups, in verbalizing mission purposes and statements, in communicating our message. And the first thing I noticed, I went, I went back into the mid-1800s, and missions terminology was different than it is right now. Uh, what I've summed it up to be is in the flow of terminology, it was then expressed in this form. Missions is civilizing the heathen, okay? And that's what was attempted. Mission boards and missionaries in the field spoke of civilizing in order to Christianize. Civilizing the savage because he had no acceptable culture into which the gospel could be planted. Now this is not what I'm saying. This is what, um, you know, the era before me uh, kind of expressed themselves. Uh, this is a general wide, wide brush full of, of uh, information. So. The emphasis was he can't understand because 
because he doesn't live in a civilization with, to which he can relate. So the emphasis was teach him to act like us. That was the emphasis, teach him to act like us. Civilizing the savage, moving ahead toward our uh, era, they kind of reconsidered what they were doing and came up with a ter terminology. No, it's not civilizing the savage, it's Christianizing the heathen, the pagans. Okay, one was their culture will not accept Christianity, but here it was, they don't, they don't uh, have a religion which is acceptable. And so what happened was a shift to, they must believe like us. They must believe like us. Hey, I, has, I see some frowns on your faces. I'm not believing this stuff, by the way. I'm just telling, telling you what, what, what was happening. So to educate them to believe like us, church liturgy, songs, prayers, language, ornate buildings, birth and enlightened people, but not a transformed people. And so we moved in, into the next era toward me. And that was evangelizing the unevangelized, the natives. And about that time, I began to hear of the emphasis on evangelism uh, and what we needed to do when we went out to some of these places. But the focus was on spiritual life, which was good, producing converts with, with new birth emphasis. Transformation was seen as inside, you transform him inside, and he's gonna transform himself on the outside. And that was good. That was very good. But this then was the, the, the work of the, the church. And so church, church planting became one of the emphasis. When I came out here in 1960, or came out here, came out, went out to the field in 1960, missioner, missions were reevaluating their policies and statements on expressing themselves. And this church planting had to be in that. Going on now, that was evangelizing the, unevan the unevangelized, who were, excuse me, natives. That was the term. And then that word became uh, improper to say. They weren't natives, they were nationals. So we've got terms like uh, church planting among the natives who have now become nationals. That's a bit more sophisticated than, than the natives, you see. Um, now, in our current era, era, I'm kind of focusing in on this. It's we're bringing in the kingdom. You're bringing in the kingdom. And that has a lot of uh, overlap with evangelism, yes, but it's really an Old Testament term that, uh, that embraces a lot of other things that is not, that are not, uh, consistent with the mandate to go and make disciples of all nations. So what happened was that they changed that to what we have now, which is discipling. That's biblical, by the way. That's biblical. But all this has affected a change in the way missions is carried out. One of those is that 
the, uh, the term, the meaning of missions is changing. And this is what you, what you hear coming out of some of the more sideline evangelicals who are struggling with this. You see, we have a change in the meaning of missions. He's not lost because of sin, but because of his social plight. He's poor and oppressed. That's the way this is, uh, this is taught. Emphasis on preaching the gospel has shifted to doing social deeds to lift him up from within the de his deceased environment. So it's now among a lot of churches and believers, let me teach you English. And on, by the way, maybe I can get some evangelism in there, but that is, uh, that is one of the emphasis these days. Or let me help you with clean water. Uh, that's another thing that's, that's pressed. And what I'm experiencing with a, a, a tinge, no, it's more than that, it's a feeling of dissatisfaction, is that term of service. And I know that many of you are headed for the mission field, foreign as well as home. Term of service has shifted. A career missionary today is one who spends two to four years on the field. Did you realize that? And I say to myself, how in the world is that possible even to learn a language, let alone, let alone should the Lord use them to translate into that language? But that's a fact. That's what's happened. Support levels have shifted radically. Allocation where missionaries' needs have changed, not for the target people, but for what his needs might be. And those needs are family, those needs are, I got to be in a situation where I can get medical help and da 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 da. So this is what's happening with admissions. And I've pulled out of that situation in missions three things uh, which I feel are the drivers of this mission. And I want to lay this out for you this morning quickly. The first is, I know that missions is carried out by committed men and women who are shaped by their culture. And unfortunately, we are victims of our culture, whether we like it or not. The only thing we can do is to build a monastery somewhere along a mountainside and shut ourselves in and, and live isolated in that situation. But that's not God, what God wants. God says, go, go. and share the gospel with those who have not yet heard. So what I see, number one, is the deterioration of our Western culture. I see that very dramatically. We have become narcissistic. We are a me first, my needs first culture. Uh, what can I get out of my mentality or out of this mentality? The American dream ideology is very much prominent. If you don't believe me, ask some of your candidates who are going out to the mission field. Some of their first questions are, uh, is there medical help up there, out there for my family? Uh, what about internet? Is internet available? Uh, these are the questions which are asked, and fortunately I'm not a 
part of that because I don't know anything about IT, that's they call it. Uh, and I'm glad I don't because I don't want to know about it. Because, but my kids are. I just call them in and say, hey, would you help me with this situation? But that's what's happening. We've become a me-first society. And the second thing I've listed here is we are a culture of convenience. We've been born into and raised within the environment of convenience, which has convinced me that I need to maintain this level of life wherever I serve. And sometimes, and I know some of you are thinking, where, the, where are the unreached people groups? I'm not sure you're gonna find it, your level of life, where you would like to go. But it's one of the problems we're dealing with. It's hard to transfer and maintain our lifestyle on any foreign field. It's difficult. And you might as well say amen to that because it's true. And if you wanna find out, go out there and see what's happening and you'll find that that's, that's what's happening. It's a culture, we are a culture of convenience. We've been born into and raised within this environment and we like it, we like it. We're geared to minimum hardship with maximum finances. Finances is shot up, talk to my grandkids. You know, phenomenal sums they had to raise in support. They did, God bless them. And they, all three of them have their full support and are out on, in Thailand and in Papua. But it is a culture of convenience. I'm not sure how they have to modify their lifestyle in a place like that. Thirdly, it's a culture of tolerance. We are living in a culture of tolerance. Tolerance takes preference over truth-telling. Politics, our educational system, humanistic ideologies have fed us this line. Other religions can protest, Christians can't. The atheist gets a hearing, the believer can't in our judicial system. We must be tolerant of the Muslim, tolerant of the atheist, tolerant, tolerant of the abortionist, tolerant, tolerant tolerant of those um, who don't respect our way of life, uh, same-sex marriage and all these, these kinds of things, we the believer actually end up with no rights and tragically and basically of our own choosing, no voice and no respect. I've seen this happen out there, going out when we went out in the 60s and 70s, very much respected. But over the years, this has eroded where missionaries and foreigners do not handle the same level of respect in a lot of these countries any longer. Now I know Trump is bringing some of this back in. Okay, sorry if I used a, a name sacrilegiously there. But anyway, it's, it's happening, it's happening. But all this to say that our culture is deteriorating. Number two, the driver number two is, there's a decreasing power and influence of the body of Christ among us. I don't hear any amens out there, but you guys are Baptists, aren't you? <laughs> you should be at least stomp, stomping your foot. Or like H.B. Uh, Charles, a black pastor in, uh, Columbia, 
Do I have a witness? Do I have a witness? <laughs> anyway, this has happened. But the second thing I want to note is there's the decreasing power and influence of the body of Christ among us. Comfort and convenience and compromise is marginalizing, marginalizing our commitment to the Lord. I live near a Bible college in, in the Columbia, CIU. My heart has been touched in altar calls when young people like yourselves flock to the front, giving their lives and surrender to Jesus Christ. But there's no follow-up, there's no real true commitment, and in short and quickly, move, they move on to something else. And I'm saying that there's an increasing, uh, a decreasing power and influence in the body of Christ, which drives, in fact, my son-in-law says, who's working with hundreds of young people. I think he's in charge of about 30 teams in Pioneers right now. He's saying, Dad, he calls me Dad, although I'm a father-in-law, can you believe it? He says, the two major weaknesses in our society right now within the church are our young people are unpastored and, and uh, unparented. There's no parenting and there's no pastoring of the young people which, which we get out here in the field. And that's what we first of all have to, have to work with, to pastor them and to move them along in the direction they need to go. So beware. Um, the reason I say this is because I'm aware that skipping church or Sunday school class is no big deal if I'm tired. You know, yes, we accept the fact that we need to go to church, but only if I'm feeling my best. Only if I'm feeling my best. If I'm tired, no problem. I can skip it. Homework, if I have homework to do, hey, skip going to church. Sunday night or prayer meeting night. It's not necessary. If I have a ball game on the schedule, anybody have that problem? I can skip church and not be, not be there in the evening. Now all this transfers into my commitment to missions. We no longer speak of burning our bridges behind us. That was a term of my era, by the way. <laughs> I don't think we do, we, we, we use that anymore, do we? But it has meaning. Ours is a fast and furious mentality. Get it over with. I'll give God two years or three years out of my life, and then I gotta get back to mama or grandma with my kids and grandkids. I need to get back where I feel at home. You don't do that when you become a missionary, folks. Home transfers to where you need to be. So that's the second driver, driver of what we're work, working with as young people these days. Our professionalism is muzzling our passion. We've lost that passion to follow God in a commitment, irreversible commitment to do the will of God. Our passion should scream, for God's sake, let's help save him with the good news. But our professionalism cautions, ooh, wait a minute, don't hurt his feelings. Don't hurt his feelings. Don't offend him. And I think of, excuse me, Carlos, the picture on the, big, on the green book. 
walked, rode with him in a taxi in Jakarta one day. He no sooner got the driver in the driver's seat when he started witnessing about his savior in where he came, where he came from in Irian Jaya. That's the kind of boldness we need in our witness, and it needs to start here. So, our, provision, our professionalism cautions don't hurt his feelings, don't offend him, but it is. It is limiting our witness for the Lord. Hey, listen, if AOC can scream uh, bold, uh, what is it? Green bold or whatever it is she says, why can't we say witnessing should be bold? In, the, in, in terms of where we as Christians need to be. I shouldn't tell you this, but I don't want to tell you where it was, but I was eating lunch one, one day recently, and I saw, I saw some young people come in, and uh, I saw this one girl, I don't know why I picked her out, but she put her plate on the table, and then she bowed her head, I thought she was going to bow her head, but all she did was this. Picked up her utensils and started to eat. And I said to myself, hmm, I think she's ashamed of the fact to say grace in a restaurant. That's wrong. Go bold. They can say go green. Hey, let's go bold with our witness and take the consequences because that's the point of the gospel. Tolerance is mitigating our boldness. Oh, I always said that thing. We can no longer say with bold conviction, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Or Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We can be courteous, but, com uh, but confrontive. That's okay. Try it. Try it. See what happens. That's number, no, I have one more item under number two there. Fadism is doing what everyone else is doing, and that has overwhelmed our faith. We have lost, lost the almighty God factor in the working out of our daily lives. I need to be near a doctor in ministry. Let's sit down and strategize, and especially in raising support. The economy is bankrupt. There's no money out there. I'll never get out in the field. Don't be so sure about that. My grandkids, all three of them, in short time, and they, we don't have big givers in, in South Carolina, but in a short time, all three of them moved in and got their full support before they went out there. And that support is very, very, very much a part of their lives as well. Driver number three, I've given you, I've given you two of them. One is, um, the, de the, the deterioration of our Western culture. The second is the decreasing power and influence of the body of Christ. Don't believe it. There's money out there for you people that want to that want to give yourself in a, with a passion to follow the Lord's calling. No passion. Don't try to go out there just because. Missions is the thing. Uh, you go out because God has called you, and you can express that with a passion that attracts people. I've said, to, I've said it often, and I say it again to you young people. 60 
60 years we've been out there in Indonesia, 59. And in writing up an article the other day, I had to say I have only one regret. I have only one regret in my 60 years of vision activity. You're supposed to ask, what was that? Okay, <laughs> okay. That regret, regret is, I wish I had another 50 years to do the same thing. That's what passion is. And I appreciated a letter, a letter from David Granson in Thailand. He was expressing that, what God was able to do through him as a new missionary in language study, but getting out, getting out to make contacts with the Thai people around about him in his community. He was enjoying, enjoying the witnessing to a new people group. And his, his uh, grandpa, is that right? Great grandpa, I've forgotten. Anyway, I read his email with a sense of satisfaction because this is where his passion was coming through and God's gonna use his kids. All right, the third driver, the third driver of this effort of missions is the, of the decreasing effort of missions is the acceleration of what we call globalization. There is an accelerated and perhaps unconscious drift by some and a deliberate push by others toward globalization as the answer to this world's problems. Globalization mirrors another Bible. That, what is the effect of globalization on missions? Well, let me pull out some things right here. It's okay, you can't stop it, but the desire to nationalize, to be part of a larger body, like the tribe or the nation or the world limits our efforts at pure context, contextualization. I've seen this. You start in one rut, and as you move on and become affiliated with the world out there, you like the idea of being close to another bigger group, and that's not wrong. It's not wrong. Secondly, I note that the emphasis on unity of faith easily shifts to the unity of forms. You got that? Unity of faith, which is great, but it shifts very easily to the unity of forms and worship to, do, to be proper. This smells of colonialism, I know that, but it tends to push cultures to, toward the dominant global power. And that dominant world, uh, Western civilization, uh, sorry, dominant Western religious power tends to view these non-Western cultural forms as still paganistic based on their expression of worship. They don't worship as we do. The activity of mission carries our faith with us and we need to, and we often feel we need to share our forms with them. And I, think, I, I uh, re remember this older man from Australia it was, we're gonna have communion out there in Donnie Land, sitting on the ground in order of little rows, rolls, rows. But we had a table, communion table, made out of local materials, wooden materials, and on that was a piece of bark, the table. And he came out to join us in the communion service. He saw that, 
And I saw him walk back to his house and he come out with, with another proper table. And with that proper table, a white linen cloth. And he asked us, could I use this instead of that piece of bark? Do your thing, you know, it doesn't matter to God. But anyway, this is what's happening in terms of uh, somehow sharing our faith uh, in, a more, uh, in a more appropriate form, they feel they're following what they've taken from home, actually, from Australia. Um, where am I here? There is a frightening, blurring, blending of important doctrinal distinctives that's happening these days, too, among missions. You people in your conservative approach to theology would have a rough, will have a rough time, but hang on, hang on. It's being, it's happening, it's happening. There's a slide toward the, toward the generic accelerated by those who press for the holistic approach to missions, and this is dangerous. The blood of Christ, for instance, the cross of Christ, repentance and faith do not mean the same in every effort of mission. Take it easy. Christian, Christian Mission Alliance, Bible Society came out and having, was having lectures for us for two days. And uh, uh, first day was great. Second day, he got up. He got up and says, well, he says, we got rid of the blood in scripture. Let's see what else needs to go today. Can you believe that? A, a believer, a believer in a very respected society. You know what happened? There are about 15 of us who met him at the front of the, the auditorium before he even finished, before he even started his lecture because he had, he had done something regretful to the blood of Christ in that situation. So we, we clobbered him. <laughs> it's, it's, in, it's in dangerous indeed. And then my last point here, because I see that clock. Fortunately, I can't see very well. <laughs> What's happened here is inexpensive transportation and the IT is sadly cutting into our missionaries' time and witness. Think that one through. It's great to have it. Everybody walks around with this thing, you know, and they reach in their pocket, and here we go, how to fix a car, or how to build a building, or something like that, it's there. Sir, I got kids. There's a lot of travel back and forth to the field. Family and friends events, marriages, celebrations, seminars, birthdays, sickness and death, all take preference over passion and love to immerse oneself in ministry and keep us attached to our own culture. There's that, there's that grab there, that magnetic uh, closeness which, which we look for. Passion to hang in there. Young people, passion to hang in there. When the going gets tough, is decreasing. And you need to be aware of that. Internet addiction. There's a lot of good in it. There's a lot of good. It, cons it consumes incredible hours of missionary time and becomes an important factor in allocation of, per of personnel because I must be near a doctor. I must be be near where I can contact, use my internet. Um, okay, go ahead. I'm glad that's not gonna be in heaven because I'm, I'm gonna end up kind of, 
kind of uh, in the wrong place if that's going to happen. But I've said this, our gadgetry is taking us away from the heart of missions, which is building relationships through evangelism and discipleship. Listen, get this, get this. The core of missions, real missions, passionate missions, is developing relationships with your, tor with your target group. With minimum friendship, with minimum friendships, there is minimum interaction, thus minimum evangelism, and minimum discipleship, and thus little church planning. H.B. Charles, where are you? I need a witness. <laughs> that's happening. I've seen that happen. And that's one reason why I'm a, I'm a person who pushes the nationals out there because it's so easy for them to do these things. This is birthing a new phase of missions and very shallow missionary commitment in two to four years while inciting young people to move out to the nations and often engaging them for a longer term of service, generally speaking, especially in a cross-cultural setting, short-term missions is more a liability than an asset. Don't move on it. As is the practice of sending large numbers of uncommitted young people to the field to taste foreign missions. That's a, a way of watering down what we're really after, folks. But that's happening. In the, even in our church down in Columbia. Uh, this year they've canceled it out, and I'm glad. But missions, the cost and productivity, of, uh, pro productivity is questionable, especially when those dollars could be used working through nationals. Missions is not a fast and furious event. Now, lastly, the price to our globalization is pushing Western missions out of the peripheral. You better believe that. Globalization is pushing missions out to the peripheral. In other words, our culture is killing us. We know what we should do. We can't do it because our culture restrains us, holds us in. Why? The price tag is too expensive. The desired perks are too many. The career is too short. And the commitment too shallow. The national church, or the, yeah, the national has much more to offer. Minimum preparation, minimum finances, minimum living accommodations, maximum identification. This is why and where national missionaries and church Planters are needed. Work through and with the national. And you can accomplish the goal that God's going to use you to accomplish there on the field. I know the, uh, the above borders on negative, negativity. And it's the dark side of missions. Nevertheless, it's a table talk of Missions USA. Do we cut missions out of program? No, we don't. Do we cut them out of our prayers? No, we don't. But we need to be aware of what's happening out there of which I'm going to be a part. And uh, that because of a passion which I can express in a framework, a framework of the culture into which I move. Not in English, if English is not the national, but in their language after I get a hold of it. Okay, that's where I am. So, I, oh, is that, stop that clock. 
But I've said this, conclusion to this confusion, three divine biblical principles. Number one, the church is a biblical and global entity. The purpose and goal of streams, missions. Discipling is the biblical and global strategy for building that divine identity which Christ left us with. Three, incarnation is the divine and biblical principle to guide us into relevant relationship to achieve the above as we move through the fog of transition in missions. And you're, you're on the way. You're on your way. Transition is out there. How are you going to handle it? God bless you. And fulfilling that great commission into which he's leading you at this point. And God's going to use you and bless you. Thank you.